Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. Of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As die-hard conservative. I to this guy for wisdom. Well, I got to say, I am very, very excited to introduce this first inaugural guest, right, to the Drew Nation. You know, the Drew Allen Show, we don't have any guests, but this is a treat. This is something special, and this is Dr. Murray Sabrin. Now, very importantly, I want to make sure you understand, Dr. Murray Sabrin is a PhD, all right? He's not an uh, EDD or, or, or whatever it is, like a fake Dr. Jill, all right? He's got the real deal, PhD, and, you know... Uh, Dr. Murray Sabrin, he is the author of, well, his most recent, his latest book. It's From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, An American Story. Um, so I'm very excited for you to hear about uh, Dr. Sabrin, his story coming to America, different than the, the comedy film, although maybe there's some comedy in his story, too. Um, but, you know, just a remarkable person, uh, a leading libertarian. He was a gubernatorial candidate, uh, historic one, actually, uh, as a libertarian. Um, and he'll correct me if I say anything wrong uh, in New Jersey back in, in the late 90s, 1997, I believe was the year. And, uh, and, and you're just in for a treat. You know, we talk about a lot of problems on this show. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Dr. Sabrin on is because he has solutions. You know, I, I just see the, the, you know, the landscape out there constantly. You know, Americans are uh, very upset uh, across the board. You know, they, they see what's happening to this great country, uh, the absolute demolishment that has taken place at the hands of our so-called public servants. And people feel helpless and powerless. And there is power in solutions, right? Things that we can do, uh, answers that we can, 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 can have to solve these problems. And Dr. Sabrin has many of those solutions. So without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. Sabrin here. And uh, I just want you to, 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 to start off, uh, Murray. I'd, I'd like you to explain to people, you know, when did, how did you come to America? When did your family come here? Where did you come from? Well, uh, it began in August 1949. Uh, after a several days sail across the uh, Atlantic Ocean, we sailed from West Germany, where I was born. Uh, my parents and my brother, uh, older brother, came here. And uh, my parents were the only ones in their families to survive the Holocaust in their native Poland. And my father uh, was a partisan commander uh, from uh, July of 1943 to July of 1944. He led about 230 people uh, men and women uh, fighting off the uh, German advance. And uh, effectively, when the Soviet army came into his part of Poland in July of 1944, liberating uh, that area, the war was effectively over for him. And he wrote a memoir called We Dare to Live, which is available on Amazon. And uh, growing up, I heard a lot of the stories he writes about, but the last story that he, write about, that he wrote about, he never told me growing up, because I, I was constantly asking him, once I knew that there was a war that his parents uh, and his uh, brothers and sisters all were killed, the same thing with my uh, mother's uh, parents and brothers and sisters, there was one vignette at the end of the book which uh, really sent chill down my spines. And I'll tell you what it is, and people can read the book for themselves and, and see exactly what he did in order to survive. Uh, when the uh, Soviets marched into uh, Poland where he was uh, fighting the Nazis, and they were liberated, a colonel asked him, uh, we want you to go on this mission with other partisans into Germany 
will parachute you in to help end the war. And he said, listen, I'm married. I have a son uh, who was a, a few years old at the time. And for me, the war is over. And he wrote that uh, after the men were recruited to go on this mission, more than 90% of them were killed. And so that is an example of uh, making a good decision when if he didn't make that decision and he decided to go on this mission that the uh, Soviet colonel wanted him to do, uh, his life would have been over and I wouldn't have been born and we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's remarkable. You know, your story and looking at other events throughout history, how just one small decision, one small change really could change the course of the course of history. And of course, in your own life, you know, you, you wouldn't be here. Uh, you certainly probably wouldn't have been in New Jersey as a uh, as a gubernatorial candidate. You wouldn't have written this book. I mean, so that, 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 that it, it's it's remarkable. And, um, you know, as, for me, at least, you know, I don't talk about it often, but as a person of faith, you know, I, I just I do believe deeply in things like that, that there, there is a hidden hand. Uh, in our lives, you know, to, to be grateful for that leads us in these directions. And, and you know, you, you answer a certain call and um, and you've spent your life uh, educating people as a professor, uh, educating people about your uh, political philosophy and what you believe is the, the, the best recipe, if you will, for human success across the board, irregardless of of any kind of, you know, creed or color or anything like that. And, and so I am curious you know, you're a libertarian, um, Dr. Sabrin. Um, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people out there, just like on the conservative side, too, you know, they uh, they present themselves as conservative or libertarian and they have no clue actually <laughs> what 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 they believe or what political philosophy they subscribe to. And uh, they give all of us a bad name occasionally. Um, but but how did you come to be be be? a libertarian? You know, did, did you come from kind of an ap- academic world? And what, what was that trajectory? Did you ever flirt with, with joining the ranks of the Democratic Party? Did that ever appeal to you? I mean, what, what was that situation like? Well, growing up in New York City in the 50s and 60s, going through the New York City public schools and uh, uh, becoming of age, so to speak, when Kennedy got elected, I remember seeing it in, in real time his ino- and hearing his inaugural address and on January 20th, 1961, we were off from school that day because there was a huge snowstorm in the Northeast and so schools were closed and I was watching it. It was cold, windy day in DC, beautiful sunshine. And I heard his inaugural address and it was very inspiring, but he said one thing that made me a little bit uh, concerned about the future, that we will go anywhere, pay any price for uh, freedom around the world. And I said, holy mackerel, does this mean we're gonna have war in order to liberate the rest of the world? And so. As things evolved with the uh, Bay of Pigs right after he uh, was inaugurated, was a fiasco. And then we had the, uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, where we came nearly to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. These were unsettling times, to say the least. And then, of course, what happened? Uh, this uh, November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy was assassinated. And it's kind of ironic or a coincidence that my autobiography was published on November 22nd of 2022, last year. So I, I'm still haunted by the Kennedy assassinations. You talk about one event that changed the course of world history, that was it, because there's substantial evidence that we 
Kennedy would not have taken us into Vietnam like Johnson did in 1965 by ordering 100,000 plus troops into Vietnam to fight to fight the communists to make sure that South Vietnam would not be taken over by the North Vietnamese communists. And so th th those are the things that formed in my mind. And then going through college, um, my father was a Democrat. He told me he uh, uh, contributed to Adlai Stevenson's presidential campaign in 1956, the first presidential campaign he was allowed to vote in because he became a citizen in 1954. And he donated $5 to his campaign, which was a lot of money back then for a blue collar worker who was making around $3 an hour. And so I was accepted the whole democratic approach to a small welfare state, um, to help people because to my teenage mind, that seemed like a reasonable thing to do. The civil rights movement seemed like it was a very noble thing to do to uh, allow people of color to uh, buy things in stores that were uh, shut out to them. And so uh, I accepted basically the LBJ agenda, uh, but Vietnam made me very nervous about does this mean that my generation uh, going to college would have to go to the jungles of Southeast Asia, which Johnson campaigned saying in 1964 that no American boys are going to go to the jungles of Southeast Asia to do what Asian boys have to do to fight off communism. And of course, a year later, less than a year later, he announces the big buildup of um, the military into Vietnam. So in 1968, I graduated from college. And I voted for Hubert Humphrey for president. That's the first and last time I voted for a Democrat because I had been reading uh, uh, Milton Friedman's columns in Newsweek. Uh, in 1969, I read uh, Ayn Rand's Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, and everything started to mesh together that the welfare state and uh, massive military adventures overseas were not the way to go to create peace and prosperity here at home. And so uh, in 1971, I read articles about libertarianism in the New York Times and um, especially Murray Rothbard's op-ed in September 1971, where he pointed out that Nixon's wage price controls would be a disaster for the country, which they were uh, over the next several years. And in 1974, well, but let me back up. In 1972, I, I decided to go to um, graduate school full-time to earn a PhD so I could become a college professor, basically embracing conservative uh, libertarian ideas. And then in 1975, I met Murray Rothbard when he was teaching in Brooklyn, and he became a member of my dissertation committee. For those of you that don't know, Rothbard was one of the foremost free market economists of the post-war and Mr. Libertarian, the foremost libertarian philosopher of the last 50 years. And so uh, I grew up embracing the uh, insights of the Austrian School of Economics, using Rothbard's um, uh, ideas about money and banking as the basis of my dissertation about how inflation spreads through the U U.S. economy and uh, and just learning about libertarianism. What does it mean? And basically it comes down to the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights are libertarian ideas. Limit government to what is essential, namely protecting people from each other. In other words, the police and court system and having an adequate military to protect us in case there's an invasion by some country that for some reason thinks it can take over America. So that's the real limited old right conservative viewpoint uh, that I was embracing. And from there on, I just was promote, I've been promoting libertarian ideas, free market ideas through books and writing. And in the classroom for 35 years at Rampo College, uh, I wasn't talking about politics per se, but I was talking about how markets get distorted by government policies, whether it's tax policy, whether it's the Federal Reserve. And so I started writing books 
on uh, tax policy, uh, tax-free 2000, how we could have a tax-free America. And then the, the, my book on the Federal Reserve, why the Federal Reserve sucks. It uh, distorts the economy, enriches the 1%, causes the boom-bust cycle. And I've written four other books since I retired in July of 2020 on having universal health care, a free market approach to health care. Again, embracing free market economics, wrote uh, the boom, uh, navigating the boom bust cycle for entrepreneurs, how they can manage their business better by uh, understanding the, the business cycle. And then the finance of healthcare to uh, give entrepreneurs more information about how to reduce their costs and provide better quality to their employees. And then my autobiography, which initially was going to be just about the 1997 gubernatorial campaign, but Michael Harrison, the publisher of the book, uh, who is also the publisher of Talkers.com, the Bible of talk radio, said, Murray, you have a more compelling story to write about than just the campaign. So I wrote the book last summer, and it was published in November. And I'm quite proud of the book because it talks about my journey, the challenges I faced as a youngster, as an adult uh, in the job market in the late 70s, early 80s, and then finding the job, the career that I always wanted, being a college professor. And for 35 years, I've, I had a the most uh, happy time because I was doing what I wanted to do, the passion of teaching young people so they could become successful entrepreneurs, successful uh, employees, whether it's in a small or any size business. And uh, now in my post-college teaching career, my job is to educate as many Americans through podcasts like this, through talk radio, TV, and other articles to say, hey, we've had this great experiment Great, not in the sense of good, great, but it's, it's been long, a long-term experiment in the welfare warfare state. And guess what? We've racked up $32 trillion of debt. We have a nearly a $7 trillion budget. We have banking crisis all over the place. We have inflation. We have endless wars overseas. We have a huge military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about. So everything that could go wrong in terms of public policy has gone wrong, and that's why I'm so concerned about the future for your generation, for my nieces and nephews, that they live in a better world than uh, uh, we've had uh, that's been unfolding here for the last uh, 10, 20 years. Well, you're right, you know, and, and the, the sad thing is that so many people in this country, unfortunately, especially Democrat voters, they can't understand that the policy prescriptions that are being put forward by Democrats are those very prescriptions that have been implemented in the past, which are actually responsible for all the problems that we have currently today. Uh, I, I want to ask you one quick question. H I mean, how many, how many years were you a professor? H how many years were you in that collegiate from, world? From, Thir 35? From, from, from 1985 to 2020. And I'm glad I left because I left when the COVID uh, lockdowns began in uh, the spring of 2020. I had to teach remotely for the first time in my life. And um, the dean complimented me at a faculty meeting saying, Murray um, could have called it in. It was his last semester as a college professor, but he did what he had to do, meet the students every single day online to complete the semester. And uh, students loved it because uh, there was no pressure on them. Um, and we got through the semester um, as well as could be, given that I had a steep learning curve to, to prepare for online teaching, which has its good sides and its downsides. The, the good size is that you can you can uh, teach remotely. The bad downside was that I couldn't see the students like you see them in the classroom. 
read their facial expression, read their body language, and have better interaction than uh, you would on a, on a Zoom call. Well, of course, you know, in, in a pinch, you know, there's definitely some upsides to it. I was talking to a, a doctor today, and I, I wanted his opinion about telehealth, and he had very few good things to, about, to say about telehealth because, you know, his point to me was, as a doctor, you miss so many things, even when the patient's in front of you, you're just going to miss right. that many more things, you know, when, when it's over, over the, you know, long distance like this, a video or something like that. But, you know, I was curious because you have been in this academic world, the world of academia for so long, which of course has been totally hijacked and taken over, almost monopolized by, you know, pe- people that have, have adopted this Marxist agenda. I mean, they're activists for the Democratic Party. And many of these universities, frankly, have been turned into Democrat training camps, in my opinion. And it, it, did that change? Did you did you feel that happening in your sphere while you were teaching in the academic world? Or, you know, has this been going on for a long time? Is it just that, you know, Democrats have always been there and they've just continued to adopt more radical policies? Or, or did you see a hijacking take place throughout your career? Well, since I was in the business school, uh, faculty members, from my perspective, for all the faculty that I knew personally, uh, they were teaching very technical subjects, whether it's in finance or in uh, management or marketing, uh, IT. It was all technical stuff in order for them to have a career in their their, uh, major. And so students have told me when they were taking courses in the social science uh, areas that uh, faculty would talk about uh, how wonderful socialism was and... uh, and that uh, one faculty member, uh, uh, one student told me uh, he forced the students in his economics class to go on a bus to Trenton to lobby, to, uh, pr- uh, to uh, be at a rally for a labor union. That was really over the top. But the student that really got my attention was a student from the Middle East who t- uh, told the class, and this was a class, I think, at banking, uh, at least 25 years ago, if not more. He said one of his uh, t- professors was extolling the virtues of socialism. And he got up and raised his hand and said, listen, I lived in a socialist country. Don't tell me socialism is a good idea. I live there. You're not living under a socialist economy. So uh, basically, he told her in a very polite way, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, that that's remarkable, somebody to stand up like that. It's, it's we, we have really fallen so far. If you, if you read different polls out there now, in terms of the the Zoomers, right, Generation Z, uh, and even some millennials, the word socialism or even communism, they actually prefer it over capitalism. And that's what's so scary today. And, you know, I always say, Murray, look to the immigrants who fled these hell holes, frankly, around the world uh, to, to hear your warning and to hear the truth about what's happening in America, because it's, it's amazing to watch, um, these, these spoiled brats that were born and raised here that are the most blessed generation in the history of mankind period, sit here and try and uh, denounce capitalism and the merits, uh, fighting for all these, these destructive Marxist agenda items like DEI, gender theory, critical race theory, and everything else. And they have no comprehension about it whatsoever. They don't understand the, the, the hundred million people that have died at the hands of, you know, communists and these types of ideologies around the world. And here they are, you know, with a silver spoon in their mouths and championing their own demise. Well, it's, it's, it's worse than that, Drew. It's also fascism. I mean, not, uh, uh, 
Nazism and uh, Italian fascism are uh, two, uh, two sides of the same coin. It's government control of business and business. Some businesses getting in bed with the government. That's the essence of fascism. It's, it's, it's basically crony capitalism on steroids where you have the uh, uh, seemingly looks like this private enterprise, but it's private enterprise in name only because governments control everything. Uh, in terms of uh, wages and prices and uh, uh, output and things like that. So, 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 so it's more a, a soft form of collectivism under the guise of private ownership than full-fledged socialism like you had in the old Soviet Union, uh, you have in Cuba, North Korea, and places like that. And it's just amazing how, how blind people are to the difference between, uh, for example, East Germany and West Germany. We were in uh, Germany in 1992, three years after the wall came down. And when you travel by bus between West Germany and East Germany, which was now united, you see the incredible difference. Everything in East Germany looked like looked gray. Every building was gray. It was all hollowed out. People looked miserable. And in West Germany, um, Berlin, Munich, uh, 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 the other major cities in West Germany, it was a vibrant society. People were happy, they were dressed well, they were fed well. And for people to ignore the differences is just remarkable. We were also in Cuba. And um, the people that are doing well are, are the ones that have small businesses, whether it's a, a auto repair shop, whether it's a taxi cab or what have you. And they, they're, when we were there about 10 years ago, they were opening up their economy. We went to a, quote, free market um, indoor uh, center which looked like a typical flea market in the United States and people were selling their foods, their food, vegetables, uh, meat, whatever. And there was a sign in Spanish saying uh, how wonderful it is to have a, a market economy. So it, it's, it's just amazing that uh, people who should know better, who because they have positions of uh, authority influence are just ignorant of the world. And, and that's what as an academic it, it just galls me that people in Washington, in the media, have no clue, or if they do have a clue, they're lying to us about the benefits of free markets and free enterprise and limited government. And uh, for them not to understand the, 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 uh, the poverty of North Korea, the poverty that you have in Cuba, the poverty you have in Venezuela now. I mean, it's just amazing what's going on in Venezuela, one of the richest countries in the world, Argentina was the sixth richest country in the world in the 1930s. Then Perón comes in and he starts to uh, have his uh, economic fascism and the country went down the tubes for, for 80, 90 years. So again, the historical evidence is all there. The economics is all there. The finance is all there. People just have to read and not be blinded by the, their ideology, which quite frankly, I don't know where it comes from in terms of saying this is better than than what we have in America, because we have an incredible standard of living. Um, we're here in Southwest Florida. We're literally five, 10 minutes away from the major shopping that we need for, for, our, for our food and uh, other things. And the stores are full of items that you see pictures of the old Soviet Union. They're empty. Let me tell you one thing about the Soviet Union in the 1960s. One of my professors who taught this, uh, the geography of the Soviet Union, I was at geography minor. She got very sick in the Soviet Union because they had soda machines. And in the United States, when you had a soda machine back then, a paper cup would come down, the seltzer and the syrup would go into the cup and you take the cup and that would be it. In the Soviet Union, you had a plastic cup that everybody used. 
you'd, it would be washed out, but God knows who was using the, the cup and she used it. I don't know why she did that. Um, I, I never got the answer, but uh, that was the Soviet Union. They didn't even have enough paper cups to go into their vending machines for soda and, and people got sick of it. That's how, that's how uh, poor the Soviet Union was back in the 60s, but they had all sorts of missiles. And this is an example of the distortions of their military industrial complex compared to our military industrial complex. We can support the military industrial complex here because we have enough free enterprise to, to provide the goods and services that people want, and they siphon off enough money to build up the military industrial complex here. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've one of the points I've made for gosh the past couple of years I think now is that obviously the United States of America is becoming more and more like China, and, and, and what's interesting is what's really happened historically, in my opinion, is you know capital uh, uh, the communist Chinese in order to become more competitive have taken communism and then adopted some aspects of capitalism and brought them into their economy. And America's done the exact reverse, which is leading us to the same place, which is that we were this supposed capitalistic, capitalist society, and we've adopted more and more of these communist ideals and incorporated them in our government. So really, there's less and less difference between us and the communist Chinese. And I think it's to the point you're making about fascism, too, where you have this insipid public-private partnership which really just leads mm-hmm. to obviously government control, which we're seeing with the banks now and everything else. Um, but 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 I do want to talk about capitalism, and I do want to get your your take on the SVB uh, bank bailout. It is a bailout. They don't want to call it a bailout because they understand right. that it has a negative connotation based on two thousand eight, two thousand nine. They, they they you know they they went and did did the test. They understand it doesn't pull well because we know we just bailed out the richest of the rich, and so this is not a bailout. But you know, this this is what, what I think is clever about what the Democratic Party and many rhinos and other people that are just corrupt politicians uh, have done for a while is they have intentionally, of course, eroded the foundation of capitalism. They have sullied it. It's crony capitalism at best in many of these cases. And so they've actually uh, injected cancer into capitalism and then it doesn't work. And then they claim that capitalism is failing. And we don't have capitalism in America today. And where you see this epic failure, it's because it's not actually capitalism. Just like healthcare, it's because it's not a free enterprise and insurance and so on and so forth. But Captain, can you get uh, cut one ready for me? So I just want you to play. So this is what Joe Biden said in response to SVB Bank. All right. He says, of course, you'll hear him say that this is an example of capitalism happening. Uh, Play cut one, Captain, and then I want to get your take on this, Doctor. Sure. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. Did anything he just described there actually take place? I mean, is his definition of capitalism correct? And then how does it actually correlate to what he's doing? Yeah, capitalism or free enterprise is a profit and loss system. And so when you make bad investment decisions, you're going to lose money. If you make good investment decisions, you can make a lot of money or potentially a lot of money. Warren Buffett is a good example of that. Uh, he's worth, what, $80, $90 billion because he's invested wisely with the money of shareholders in uh, the, the company that he runs, Berkshire Hathaway. But Biden is right. The shareholders are, are holding the bag because uh, the management mismanaged the, the bank. 
depositors, however, are going to be made whole, even though there's a $250,000 limit on what FDIC insures. And so uh, this is an example of moral hazard that uh, money is going into the banks. The banks take the money and they invested in this case, they invested in long term bonds, which were at two percent. And as rates went up because the Fed's trying to fight inflation, the value of the bonds went down. So the equity in the bank, the balance sheet, the asset side went down, wiping out the equity of the company, of the bank. This is a classic case of making a bad decision because interest rate manipulation by the Federal Reserve rates never should have been at two percent to begin with for long term bonds. But the Federal Reserve flooded the economy with seven trillion dollars from 2020 to 2022. And then it, it, we're reaping the world with of uh, inflation and distortions in the uh, not only the banking system, but throughout the economy, because people took the signal from the Federal Reserve and they speculated because they weren't getting a yield on their money market funds. They were close to zero for a long time. And uh, Treasury bills were doing the same thing. So, again, here is another example of an anti-capitalist approach to the economy where you have a central bank manipulating interest rates. Interest rates should be set by the marketplace, by borrowers and savers. Then you would get a, a free market interest rate. We don't have that anymore uh, at the short end because the Federal Reserve targets the short end with its, with its buying and selling of government securities, driving interest rates up or driving interest rates down. So again, having researched the Fed for nearly a half a century, the, the solution is very simple. Get the Fed out of the business of setting interest rates, stop printing money, and let the market decide all these things. And what would happen, Drew, from a, from a long-term perspective, or even a short-term perspective, if the Fed stops printing money, prices will come down slowly as there's a greater output of goods and services. In fact, if you look at prices of some items over the last 20 years, prices have come down despite the general inflation we've had. The general inflation has been concentrated in uh, healthcare and in education and some other sectors, uh, housing, obviously, because of the low interest rates. So those are the main areas and, of course, energy as well. So this money has to go somewhere that the Fed creates and bidding up the prices of goods and services. Collectible prices have gone through the roof, artwork and other collectibles. So we have a distorted economy. But as I keep on reminding people, because we have enough free enterprise in America, the men and women entrepreneurs are doing their best to get, uh, provide us with the goods and services we want. And that's why the American people's living standards are relatively high compared to the rest of the world. And so um, we just have to continue deregulating the economy, get the Fed out of areas that it has no business in, cut the federal budget, cut taxes, uh, stop the military industrial complex from expanding and shrink that military industrial complex. Those are the solutions. And of course, restore the doctor patient relationship and get the government out of healthcare as well. And so that's what I've been promoting because these are real solutions to the issues facing the American people. And if we follow that prescription, since I am a doctor, I can write prescriptions, right, on public policy, uh, we can have a much better economy, less polarization. But the leftists, the progressives, have to understand that what they're promoting is really snake oil, failed policies that have been tried and failed for the past 200 years all around the world. Yes. And, and one of the things I try to explain as often as I can you know, to my audience 
is that in order to understand why the Democratic Party behaves in the manner that it does and the reason that it won't solve problems is because that the actual structure of the Democratic Party is arranged in such a way that it intentionally creates problems because it needs problems to campaign on. If the Democratic Party ever solved a problem, it would it would have no reason to exist anymore. And you see this some on the rhino side, too. You know, they become campaign issues. So, you know, both sides kind of play off of one another. And that, you know, so these these problems never end up getting solved. But you just listed a bunch of of prescriptions, if you will. We can look at the Fed. We can look at what happened with the housing collapse and the financial crisis of 08, 09. You can trace that back to government policy and the Fed policy and setting goals and objectives in terms of home ownership, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and injecting trillions of dollars into the economy to give these these, you know, uh, you know, mortgages to people who well, they were high risk and they knew that when interest rates rose, they wouldn't be able to pay for their homes. And of course, we had the, the housing bubble burst. But we don't seem to have learned our lesson from that. Instead, we still have the Fed behaving in the same manner that it has before. And what's bizarre to me, doctor, is the Democrats in particular claim to be progressives. So by virtue of using that terminology, they essentially are claiming that they are looking for improvement. They, they mm-hmm. have their eyes towards improving society. And yet when we have decades and decades now of failed policies and programs, whether it's the take over the education system, the federalization of that, whether it's the healthcare situation now, whether it's social security, Medicare, Medicaid, these programs that are going bankrupt, the poverty rate. We have all these examples. And yet the Democratic Party, anytime you talk about reform, anytime you put out the information like the CBO does and says in nine years, we're going to be insolvent with social security. What is the Democratic Party's response? It's, it's not to change anything. And I don't understand it. I, I want to give you an example, doctor. Captain, cue up cuts, um, cut two. I, I just want to play this. This happened in uh, a Senate finance hearing is either today or yesterday. And it's Senator uh, Bill Cassidy and Janet Yellen discussing Social Security. And, and I just this is shocking to me. Uh, go ahead and play the cut, Captain. And I might call it uh, have you cut it short. OK. Will be a 24% benefit cut for those who are current recipients. Is he aware of that? Well, it's clear that Social Security. But is he, I apologize for interruption, but I have limited time. Is the president aware that when Social goes broke in nine years under current law, there's a 24% cut in benefits for people who are currently receiving? If we don't do anything about it, I think that's about right. But okay, let me the ask. president will want wants to strengthen Social Security. And in the four point sure five trillion dollars of taxes the president has proposed, are any of those taxes going to shore up Social Security? I actually know that answer. The answer is of the four point five trillion in taxes he has proposed, not a dime is going to shore up Social Security. Does the president know personally anybody who is dependent upon Social Security and if their benefits are cut by 24 percent, 
they will slide into poverty. It's hard for you to know. Uh, so I'll give you a pass that on that. The president knows many people on Social Security. Then why doesn't the president care? He cares very deeply. Then where is his plan? He stands ready to work with Congress. That's a lie, address. because when a bipartisan group of senators has repeatedly requested to meet with him about social, so that somebody who is a current beneficiary will not see her benefits cut by 24%, we have not heard anything on our request. And we've made multiple requests to meet with the president. Now, I, you can't comment on that. I realize that. But that is a fact. And if you've been told to say... So I just wanted you to hear that because it's astounding to me because as much and, and look, I'm going to have you provide you, you wrote brilliantly at your own Substack your solution for Social Security. And it is brilliant. And I want you to explain it to the audience because I'm sure there's other solutions out there. This one makes perfect sense and everyone comes out a winner. OK, uh, but here you have this Democrat Party that they understand the information just like anybody else. Nine years is going to be no money. So this, so the options are you hike taxes by an enormous rate, which is going to devastate people, or you cut the benefits by 23, 24%, which is also unfair. And yet the Democrat Party says do nothing. Demo that Republicans, if they offer any solution at all, they want to destroy Social Security. They're the ones destroying Social Security by yeah. doing nothing. So, I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, simple. First of all, we have to tell the truth about Social Security. It's an intergenerational chain letter, which means it's a Ponzi scheme, which the Security and Exchange Commission says is illegal. And yet the federal government is running an illegal intergenerational letter. Having said that, we just can't end Social Security tomorrow. As much as uh, it would be a, a good thing to do, we shouldn't do it because it would be inhumane. So what do we do? We make sure that all Social Security recipients get their money for as long as they live. And we, uh, young people like yourself, you are off Social Security, no more taxes, no more employer Social Security taxes, and you save for your retirement in a super IRA. And that would allow you to accumulate wealth for the next 40, 50 years, whatever the time horizon is, then you want to retire. In addition, this is the beauty part of it. We make capital gains, dividends, and interest tax-free. And this way we can freeze the, the COLA, no more COLAs, because there should be pressure on the Federal Reserve not to increase the money supply, which causes inflation. So everyone is going to have to pull their weight. Current Social, social Security recipients will have no in, uh, taxes on their interest or dividends so they can put money in, a, in an account that will grow over time and the interest will be tax-free. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, super wealthy people like Warren Buffett, the Obamas, uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, they can do something great for the country. They can say, we don't want to have Social Security because it really doesn't mean anything for our uh, uh, living standards. So again, this is having a conversation first to acknowledge the what the what the issue is, and then what are the humane solutions that will allow young people to save for themselves. That is part of the financial independence program I've been pushing now for thirty years, and giving current beneficiaries the, the uh, comfort to know that they will not lose a penny from what they're getting now, and that money will continue as long as they live. That's the solution long term. And so in 50 years, 40 years, there won't be any more Social Security. People will be financially independent because they will have saved throughout their working years in the American economy through stocks, through bonds, through uh, money market funds. 
And that's the way to deal with uh, an issue that people think is untouchable. It's not untouchable. All you have to do is tell the truth. Well, doctor, I can't for the life of me understand why the Democratic Party refuses to address the reality that Social Security is bankrupt. Why are they so opposed to having a discussion about fixing it? They won't even offer a single solution. They don't want to talk about it at all, except to say that to touch it is to hurt old people. Why? 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 I mean, is I don't. If I'm a Democrat and I'm the champion of welfare, because they're the ones who've come up with all these welfare programs to begin with, is this not an opportunity for them to say, "Look, we have a problem with Social Security." And we have a solution to it. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't get rid of it. Is that why? Because that's really where it has to go if they're going to be honest about it and they can't do it. This is part of the welfare state philosophy that has been around for the past hundred years, starting with the progressive period uh, during the Roosevelt administration. And as you look at a timeline of everything that's happened for the past hundred years, it's to expand the progressive agenda. In fact, Drew, which most people don't know about, If you look at the 1912 Socialist Party platform, virtually every social welfare program has been enacted by both the Democrats, and I'm sad to say by Republicans who should know better. And so this is the issue we're facing. We have a constitutional crisis. We have a financial crisis. And no one wants to get to the root cause of this, which is big government policies, which don't fix the issue. And there's no issue to fix in the sense that... Financial independence should be the goal of every child who becomes an adult. You want to make sure that you have enough income and accumulated wealth so when you retire, you have a health savings account that you accumulate over your lifetime to pay for the benefits so you don't need Medicare. And then we have nonprofit health centers, which I helped create one in in northern New Jersey that would uh, provide for medical care for uh, low-income folks. And you phase out Social Security in a humane way. This, these are free market solutions which are tried and true because it's based upon the notion of individual sovereignty. And that's what's missing in this whole debate. Are we sovereign or are we or should, or should we be dependent on the federal government for our existence? Yeah, I, 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 part of this is a rhetorical question. I think I understand it. I do want you to answer it, though. Right now, the United States of America seems to be simply following the same trajectory of every other failed country in the history of mankind. What is it that's so powerful and alluring about these horrible, insipid ideas and false promises that come from the left, whether you call it socialism or Marxism or communism? Uh, I mean, all of these things have taken historically other countries down as well. Where have we failed so so hard, so badly in America that we haven't pre- prepared young people to understand that these things don't work? I mean, why? Because, you know, the Democratic Party makes these emotional arguments. And look, the reality is since FDR even and even before that, when these ideas were kind of introduced in America from the communists and everything else, we have been lurching left, left, left. We have never made significant ground to move back to the right, if you will, towards freedom. That's the way yeah. I'm looking at it. Or up and down, as Reagan yeah. would say. You know, We are being dragged back into the swamp. Why, why is this happening? 
It's, it's, it's ideology. It's pure ideology. This is what youngsters learn in grade school. They learn it in high school and they learn it in college. And of course, the media uh, uh, confirms all this. Economists confirm this, uh, the vast majority of them who believe in big government. And so you have this whole educational media congressional complex that is promoting these ideas and why they can't see that it doesn't work is, is really remarkable. I, I think this is one of the great issues of our time. Why do people cling on to a philosophy that has totally failed wherever it's been tried? What, they, what some of the uh, leftists want is they want a welfare state that continues to provide uh, benefits to people, but uh, they don't want the hyperinflation that may be coming down the road because that's the inevitability of, of a huge welfare state. And we know demographically, we cannot support Social Security and Medicare because people are getting older and not enough young people are being born in order to pay for the benefits of future retirees. And so that's why education is the key. And uh, being an academic, teaching a very technical subject and also writing books on public policy I think I have the ability to explain this in, in a way that even Joe Biden and Janet Yellen can understand you, the, you, what you're doing or what you're promoting or what you've embraced or what you're uh, continuing to uh, uh, expound is not working. It's a very practical uh, argument. It's not working. F forget about the philosophical argument. And so uh, I think we have an enormous opportunity because, uh, unfortunately, the, the Republicans in the Congress are not standing up and giving this type of presentation to the American people. They're just uh, uh, dancing around the edges here. And they should say, look at the definition of a Ponzi scheme, according to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and compare that to the structure of Social Security. And then you would ask another question. Can a private company structure a retirement program based upon Social Security? And the answer would be no. Fidelity couldn't do it, Vanguard couldn't do it, or any other investment firms. So we have a fundamental constitutional issue, philosophical issue, legal issue, if you will, economic issue. And so you've got to be clear that the goal is not to run grandma off the cliff. And the, and the Democrats, all they want is a campaign issue that Republicans want to cut Social Security. I just said, you're not going to cut Social Security into my plan. You're just going to give young people the opportunity to invest for themselves, which they should be doing based upon the concept of financial independence. And so it seems to me that that argument has to be made, and the Republicans are not making that argument. No, no, we're really failed debaters. You know, I, I did a whole episode last week, I think, and I wrote a, an, a column on my own Substack about how to debate Jon Stewart because I watched that poor guy from Oklahoma uh, just get torn apart because, you know, he, he makes all these mistakes when you get into a debate with a leftist. Uh, you know, they yeah. set these traps. They come in with a strategy to destroy you and you come in, you know, thinking that you're going to have some fair discussion and it's not. It's a setup and they get you to accept the false premise. And, I, and I'll, right. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things I said about addressing Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart's goal in the beginning was to get, of course, uh, Dom, Nathan Dom was the uh, representative's name from Oklahoma, to accept the premise that more guns create more crime and more death. And and what I said Nathan Dom should have said to to John Stewart in the very beginning was flip it, flip, turn the tables on him and say, actually, do you know how many lives are saved with guns every year? And do you know how many crimes are prevented? Far more than are committed. 
And so, you know, we just have to learn uh, to talk to these people. And, and because we're more honest and we just want to talk about facts and we are, frankly, way more educated and informed than the left, uh, you know, we want to have these conversations. But unfortunately, the left, I mean, they have talking points and they have uh, developed strategies to shut down debate. So we're not coming at the same place where you and I maybe want to have a discussion, even if we have disagreements. But but when you get into it with a the leftist, they don't want to have the conversation. They're just trying to humiliate you and make you look like a fool. Well, this, the gun issue is fascinating because um, many years ago, I think uh, right after the 2020 um uh, election. I was invited uh, where I was U.S. Senate candidate in the Republican primary. I was invited to uh, a homecoming debate in Minnesota, and then I took the uh, pro-Second Amendment position. And uh, basically what I said is, the, does every human being have the right to self-defense? Forget about the Second Amendment now. Does a human being have the right to self-defense? Do you have the right to, to defend yourself if someone attacks you, your family, uh, your your uh, tries to break into your home well if the answer is yes then you need the means to protect yourself unless you're uh, a martial artist or something like that and you, and you can use your own hands as as uh, uh, prote- uh, ways to protect yourself so if if protecting yourself is a human right then you need the means to protect yourself end of story because if you say you don't have the right to protect yourself then you're saying that we have to be pacifists in the in when people commit aggression against you i mean who believes that except a hardcore pacifist. So you can turn this around very easily and say, I took an oath when I became a U.S. citizen, Drew, in 1959 to a constitution. The Second Amendment is part of the constitution as uh, the oath that every member of Congress took and every judge and every president, which means that you, the people have the right to defend themselves according to the Second Amendment. In other words, the Second Amendment recognized our right to self-defense. It didn't give us the right to self-defense. It recognizes our basic human right. That's the issue. That's that's those are the quote the talking points that we should be making. That having the ability to defend yourself is as, is as common as having the ability to read a book. Do we have the right to read a book on every subject under the sun as an adult? Yes. Therefore, we have the right to defend ourselves, just as we have the right to do anything we want that's peaceful. And that's why. That's what we should stress, that, that little wonderful booklet by Leonard Reed, the founder of the Foundation of Economic Education, anything that's peaceful. That's the way you create a harmonious society. If everyone believes that, we know that what's not peaceful, taxation is not peaceful because you are compelled to hand over your money to an entity, the government, that, who, uh, which does things that you may not agree with. So how do you get around that? How do you diminish that? You follow the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, which talks about what are the legitimate spending of the federal government. And most of what the federal government spends is not authorized. So we can debate that and we should have a national discussion. But clearly, the left doesn't want to have that discussion and the Republicans don't want to even bring that up. No, and you mentioned the Constitution, and this is something I bring up all the time, too. We get into the weeds with these different arguments with Democrats all the time about, you know, oh, let's let's compromise on gun legislation, you know, common sense gun control. I mean, at the end of the day, it's unconstitutional, any of these proposals. In fact, many of the laws, like where I live in California, pretty much all of them are unconstitutional, and yet they're laws. The, the point is, this is happening all across the country. We don't live in a constitutional republic anymore. It is very much a post-constitutional right. republic. But the issue is, we don't have any kind of uh, apparatus 
like the government does with police forces and things to actually implement things or hold people accountable. So I, I, this this is the conundrum for America and a peace-loving people. I mean, what is to stop the Biden administration or some other dictator that fancies himself Napoleon Bonaparte? What is to stop him from doing whatever he wants? They violate the Constitution. They get a court to go along with it, just like uh, like a Supreme Court in the past said, yeah, that's right. The Constitution really means that blacks don't have rights. That's what they I mean. You know, this happens all the time. Uh, so short of a, a informed, educated populace that's actually going to raise hell when the government actually violates the contract between us and them. Uh, this this is the, the the thing that I always say. What's the end result? What are you supposed to do? And and look, I am I I want to be very very cautious here and honest. I'm not calling for any violence at all. Okay, but I just want to point out if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's very explicit about what the rights of the people are. Should a government descend into some tyrannical government? And mm-hmm. obviously, it's an uncomfortable thing that people don't want to discuss and talk about. Uh, I understand that. But, I mean, what is to stop the, the federal government from doing whatever they want? I, I just see it lurching so fast to the left towards authoritarianism. You see the persecution of Americans across this country, the way they're treated. I mean, the left projects completely and says that the right is a bunch of fascists, but it's the left that's persecuting people that are right-leaning every single day. They're taking away their due process rights in terms of the J6 protesters. Uh, I mean, anything to achieve their agenda. And that's what's frightening to me is, you know, this is what this is what Lincoln talked about, you know, 20 years or so before he became president, when he was just a, a, a state representative in Illinois, he gave this Lyceum address and he talked about the need for everyone to abide by the Constitution. Otherwise, you get anarchy. And what happens is a bunch of peaceful people look around them and they see their friends, their neighbors, their family members being persecuted, being attacked by mobs, and there's no one coming to defend them from the government that should be doing that, what happens next? That's the frightening thing. Well, this is why we have to educate the American people and to speak out uh, to the editor. I just wrote a letter to the uh, editor of the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if they're going to publish it, but I'll put it up on my Substack column so people could read what needs to be done. What needs to be done from from a very sim- simple way, not simplistic way, as you pointed out, just follow the Constitution. Uh, the General Welfare Clause has been uh, the problem here because judges have used it to say anything that, quote, promotes the general welfare, the federal government can do. And that stems from the, uh, uh, the FDR legislation of the 1930s to, quote, fight the Depression, which, of course, uh, he didn't fight the Depression. He just made it worse. It lasted for a full decade. So we have a lot of work to do because uh, the ideology of uh, the campuses, the ideology of the media, the ideology of the courts and um, uh, uh, most members of Congress is that um, we can do anything because there are so many problems that need government solutions. And the government, there are no such thing as government solutions. The solutions are all private. And that's why I'm an advocate of free enterprise and, and nonprofits because they're the institutions, organizations that provide things that people want in a very, in what? In a peaceful manner. Government, in the final analysis, is coercion. It's based upon coercion. And, and for some reason, the left thinks that coercion is an acceptable means to achieve their objectives. And so 
the challenge I would lay down to the Democrats and to my Republican friends as well, if you believe the American people want all the federal spending that, that the Biden administration wants or any administration, let's have voluntary contributions to the federal government. Let's see how much the people value the, what the federal government is doing. And I would suspect not much money would flow into the federal government because that would be true reflection of the people's values vis-a-vis -vis the federal budget. And uh, I may write a Substack column on that. If we really believe that the people want all the spending, then people should voluntarily pay for it as they voluntarily pay for internet service, cell service, gasoline, all the services that people and uh, goods that they purchase because it reflects their values. And that's what's missing from this discussion. In order to have a free society, people need to express their own values in a peaceful way. And we don't have that for the most part, well, we do have it for the most part, but a lot of our income, go, we know, goes through taxa to taxation, and that doesn't reflect our values. Captain, I want you to bring up that photo of the Fed budget that I have, just that one photo. I want, I want Dr. Sabrin to see this. Um, I mean, you know, I can't put the cursor over it, but I'll just tell you, I mean, the, the 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 largest expenditure there social security unemployment and labor um yeah, that's 53 percent of the of the federal expenditure in 2021 and then medicare and health is 28 percent so what are yep. you at with 53 plus 28 i mean yeah. these are trillions and trillions of dollars so if you look at the 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 problem in the country which is debt which is annual deficits that's where you have to look i mean other places too but that alone is just is just stunning to me, and yeah. it's only getting worse. Um, and I just, I mean, if we do not address the welfare state, if we don't address the central point from your libertarian perspective, which is people need to be responsible for themselves, and they they can't be victims that are taken care of by the federal government. If we don't address that central issue, I mean, financially, this country's doomed. There's no way around it. Well, that's. There's no question about it. We're, we are on the path of more unsustainable spending. And uh, one day we may wake up and the federal government will have spent so much money. They will, the Federal Reserve will have printed so much money to pay for these expenditures. We go into a runaway inflation. And that's the danger we're, we're facing because uh, the rest of the world is very leery of holding on to dollars because they see what's going on in America with all this spending and the chinese don't want to be subservient to the dollar neither the russians and so they're slowly getting rid of dollars and uh, that's the challenge uh u.s policymakers will see down the road what happens when uh, uh, more and more countries more and more investors around the world decide that they don't want to hold so many dollars and that's when it's checkmate happening uh, across the globe i mean the, the Chinese have been talking to the Saudi Arabians and, and, and convincing them to go off of the petrodollar and adopt essentially a petro yuan. And I've been warning about that for a long time. The moment they do that, the moment the, the, the world economy switches from the U.S. dollar to maybe the Chinese yuan or even other currencies, uh, that's it. We have, we have escaped a lot of ruin that even European countries and others have suffered in a greater way than we have simply because we always have a place to put our dollars. We all have people to, to buy our debt. Uh, I, I, I want to play a clip. I, 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 this is, this is a, a flashback in time for Dr. Sabrin. This is when he ran for governor in New Jersey back circa 1997. 
I want to play cut. Uh, I think it's the last cut I have there, Captain. Cut six, maybe. I want to play that cut. Yeah. It, it, so the reason I picked this is because we have, I think, racist, race issues in this country uh, have only gotten worse, of course, ironically or not, if you understand the intentions behind the, the philosophy since Barack Obama came into office. Uh, things are getting worse. And of course, critical race theory is not about abolishing as much as you can racism from people's hearts and minds. It's about reintroducing racism and proliferating racism in America by teaching, of course, you know, black children that by virtue of their skin color, they're victims of, uh, you know, slavery. Uh, and white people are oppressors just because of their skin color. Well, this is Dr. Sabrin back in 1997 asked about affirmative action in this debate. And I want you to hear his, his brilliant response, which is still true today, about how to address racism. How do you address racism? Because it's a personal issue, just like poverty. Okay, go ahead and play the cut, Captain. That should be addressed. That should be adhered to. As far as addressing this whole issue of racism in our society, it's very simple. It's a problem, but it won't go away by extending the law to make it a crime to do this. Penalties are in place. And so what we have in the United States today is trying to help people who have been discriminated in the past. And in doing so, we discriminate against people who have nothing to do with those past discriminations. So we are in a bind when it comes to these decisions. What we need to do is deal equitably with people at all levels. If we do that, which is trusting the people to make the right decision, this problem will go away on its own. Senator McGrath. What do you think? I mean, that was a couple of years ago for you, doctor. Well, you, a long you, time you ago. You stand by uh, that the same? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, I discussed the civil rights bill and uh, my thinking about the uh, civil rights legislation in my autobiography. And um, I, w I was a big proponent of the civil rights legislation when I was a high school student back in the 1960s. And then uh, re reading and uh, doing a deep dive into libertarian philosophy and what's the best way to deal with racism is to expose racism. So I would never uh, patronize a Jewish merchant that says, I'm sorry, a, non, a Jewish merchant who says Jews are not allowed here. Why would I want to patronize so, an anti-Semite? So the market would take care of this, ironically. People think the market is, is, a, is a racist institution, but the market would be the best way for people to express their preferences. No blacks allowed, no Jews allowed, no Catholics allowed. Who would want to patronize them? They would go out of business very quickly because people of goodwill would say that person is a racist, that person is a sexist, that person is a homophobic, that person is an anti-Semite, anti-Catholic. Therefore, we're not going to patronize them. So the market would take care of that because there's a huge price to pay for discrimination, something that um, the do-gooders who think that you need um, anti-discrimination laws, anti laws think is necessary. Yeah, yeah. Well, and at the end of the day... Um... You cannot legislate racism out of existence. You can't legislate prejudice out of existence. Right. Prejudice is something that's been with humankind as long as we've walked the earth. And I mean, it's this whole the whole issue, of course, with the Democratic Party. The, the thing that really astonishes me is there was no big switch in which the Democratic Party suddenly became champions of civil rights and the Republicans became racist. That's not what happened. If anything, the Democrats hijacked the Republican agenda. Uh, it's more complicated than that, of course, going back to Hoover and everything. But the idea when I hear Joe Biden or Democrats go to certain crimes, 
in which horrendous acts of racism were perpetrated amongst black Americans. And of course, Democrats were the ones who were responsible for those actions and preached to the American people uh, about how racist we are without mentioning that it was actually the Democratic Party that was responsible. I really have no stomach for it. And it's one of these bewildering things to me that the Democratic Party has gotten away with this in America. Because I make an analogy of, you know, imagine if the Nazi Party had not been abolished after World War II. Let's say they were allowed to persist just as the Democratic Party wasn't abolished after the Civil War in America. And imagine if some Nazi representative was running for office and had the audacity to tell the German people about, you know, oh, you know, uh, the, the Holocaust was this horrendous thing that the German people did, and we need to pay for these. And all the while, this person's a member of the party that perpetrated it in the past. I mean, it's just you wouldn't get away with it. it it's, mm. This is a mind, mind-boggling thing that they've, they've managed to pull the wool over people's eyes in America, especially when their policies have done great harm to the black community since. Well, Johnson was the, was a, the, uh, a master politician. He saw this as a way of solidifying uh, the black vote for the 1964 presidential election. And um, uh, this thing could have been handled by decentralizing the whole issue, by uh, uh, having black people build their own businesses in the South and in the North where, where there was discrimination and just remove the roadblocks for black businesses throughout the country. And there was plenty of evidence that government regulation prevented black people from opening up businesses. And uh, uh, one of the articles I read that starts me to think about this issue was Milton Friedman's column in Newsweek in 1966. I remember vividly where he said minimum wage laws are the most anti-racist laws in America because it doesn't allow uh, skilled young people, especially black young people, to get a job because they were priced out of the market. So that got me thinking as a college student, let's look at all the regulations, such as licensing laws for uh, beauticians, which you would need to have certain uh, requirements that you, you don't need to be a good beautician, but licensing laws prevent you from doing that. Uh, liquor license laws and all these other laws where you need permission from the government to open up a business. So when you look at the whole array of regulation out there, you see how it discriminates, how it hurts the very people that the, the leftists say we're going to help with more and more entitlement programs and spending programs. That's true. All of it. All of it. I, I want to get your take on this before before we close out here. I, I did want to talk about this. You, you referred to it, this article you sent me, as the War Street Journal, which I think is, is hilarious. I didn't come up with that. That's what Dr. Sabrin came up with, the War Street Journal. And uh, he's right. So the context, of course, is that Governor Ron DeSantis came out and called the a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, a territorial dispute, which is factually, historically true. And yet the warmongers and the neocons out there who really, really want us to go to war with Russia and escalate things and stay there forever and spend all of our money and resources, well, they call this Ron DeSantis's first big mistake. Now, the, the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal here, they say he may regret describing the war in Ukraine as a mere territorial dispute. This is flirting with GOP isolationalism, 
isolationism that has emerged from time to time in history and has usually been an electoral cul-de-sac. Now, I see a lot of similarities with Russia-Ukraine and what we're doing with the Vietnam War. Uh, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. I mean, why, why does it have to be like this? What, why is it that if you – I guess I, I'd say it this way, doctor. Given all of the perilous circumstances and challenges facing America right now today, with China on the rise, obviously intending on doing harm to us, uh, with this kind of reformation of powers out there, these new alliances forming between Iran, China, um, Russia, and of course, Saudi Arabia, China, you know, trying to get, to, to, to get them off of the dollar. And so, and our economy in turmoil with a financial crisis that's looming and everything else, all of these things. And none of that seems to matter for any of these people who are advocating for war because just the principle alone, right? The principle alone, we just... We have to do this kind of thing. I mean, what is what is the stupidity and insanity of what's going on here? Believe it or not, uh, th- there is an argument to be made that our foreign policy is based upon Harold Mackinder, a British geographer who wrote the Heartland Theory in the 1890s, something I learned when I took a course in political geography as an undergraduate in the 1960s at the height of the Vietnam War. He posited that uh, in order to protect the West, from the heartland being Russia and China at the time, that the West should contain those two countries. And if you look at our post-war foreign policy, where where have we been involved militarily? The Korean Peninsula, Indochina, the Mideast, and now Ukraine, Russia. What do those have in common? If you draw a line from North Korea to to Indochina, to the Mideast, to Russia, you have an arc surrounding the heartland. And if you look at a map where U.S. military military bases are, we have dozens and dozens of military bases surrounding China and dozens and dozens of military bases uh, surrounding Russia. You would think that the leaders of those countries would get a little bit nervous given that we have bases there. Could you imagine if Russia and China had bases in Canada? Mexico, Central America, South America, we would go crazy in this country, just as the Kennedy administration said no to the missiles, the Soviet missiles in Cuba. And we nearly went, nearly had a nuclear war over that because our national security suggested no missiles in the Western Hemisphere. So from a common sense perspective, let's get rid of the missiles. Let's get rid of as many nuclear weapons as possible. And let's negotiate in good faith the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And if Biden did that, he would show he's a statesman instead of a stooge for the neocons. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. You know, we'll, we'll close out on that note. But, but I just think that's such an important point to make because people act like war is the only option. It's all Putin's fault. We have made no effort to create a peace negotiation or deal. That has not happened. Uh, if we're the United States of America and we're this imminent, you know, uh, the, the, this great superpower that's capable of doing so much and so feared and, and respected or whatever around the world, we could get this done. But that's not being done. Instead, we're just listening. We, we have isolated Putin. Uh, we've pushed him closer to China. And none of that is in America's interest. We should be trying to deescalate this and also have respect for the history of Ukraine and Russia, which is a shared history. Mm-hmm. I'm not. And this is the thing. I, 
Putin's a monster. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but this is not the Cold War. Cold War. It's not the 80s anymore. And we're acting like things haven't changed between then and now. And certainly Russia's not a friend of ours. But I, I, I just, the, the only path for these people is war. That's all. It's, it's what they want. They, 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 they hate Putin the way they, they hate Trump, frankly, to be honest. And they can't see any gray areas in Russia, Ukraine. I mean, Eastern Ukraine longs to what many of the pop, many of the people in that population see themselves as Russians. Um, and Western Ukraine's different. And it's our intervention that's gotten into this point too with NATO. And, and we, look, we have, there is no democracy in Ukraine. We have been involved in right. operations there. We have, we have, overthrown their government and participated in it to get them to come towards NATO. And that's really what this is about to me. You've got Ukraine, which has an existential crisis, a decision to make about whether it wants to have a future with Russia or a future with the West. And that's what's going on. And we've been fighting to pull them towards us. Drew, I would urge all the listeners to go to uh, uh, YouTube and listen to President Kennedy's June 1963 commencement address at American University, where he laid out a peaceful foreign policy for the United States in the Cold War. And five months later, he was assassinated. I don't think it's any coincidence that what he wanted was being rejected or was rejected by the military industrial complex. And they, as they say, the rest is history. Well, look, we, we know, as a matter of fact, JFK was uh, obviously he was assassinated and the the likelihood is of course that the CIA and the US government was actually involved in that assassination and of course that sends shockwaves around the world because this deep state we talk about has been around for a long time manipulating events but but we're going to do this again um I want to thank Dr. Murray Sabrin for coming on being the in- inaugural guest you know I I I I learn a lot from him and actually I I lean on him more and more actually these days as a resource and for information because he's, he's lived a, a, a marvelous life, uh, continues to do so, continue, continues to be a champion for, for the United States and for what's best for all Americans in this country, for our own self-improvement. And, you know, and you have a generational difference here. And, I, you know, I, I really respect you and admire you, doctor. And I'm committed to the same, to, to the same thing, educating people for the purpose of, of you know, doing what our duty is, right? To, to protect this greatest nation, the history of, of mankind, and to pass it on to our posterity. Uh, so I, I do want to give uh, Dr. Sabrin a chance to tell you where to, to get his book, too, because it's, it's a remarkable book. It's called, again, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, An American Story. Um, is the best place still to buy that book on Amazon? Amazon, and uh, what the publisher did, because he thinks this is such a compelling book, he wants this to, to be available household. That's why he priced it the way he has. So people can buy several copies, give it out to family, friends, colleagues, their congressmen, their state representative, because uh, my story is not different from a lot of other immigrants who came to America after World War II from parents who survived the Holocaust. And how, how that event shaped my thinking and eventually made me who I was as an adult in terms of peace, prosperity, limited government, constitutional republic. And if we follow those principles that the founders laid down for us, and besides, if, if you want to take another perspective, when my parents named me when I was born in 1946, what name did they give me? Moses. And so the Ten Commandments to me is one of the most important 
documents, if you will, of all time. So between the moral principles of the Ten Commandments, the, uh, the, the governing principles of the of Bill of Rights and the Constitution, we could have the best society that ever been cr uh, created by human beings on, on the face of the earth. Well, that's a that's a good wisdom from the doctor himself. All right, everyone. I want to I want to thank you all again for tuning in. Uh, thank you, Dr. Murray Sabrin, for coming on and and just sharing your 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 life experience and your wisdom with everybody. All right, as we still say, God bless you all. This is Drew Allen, your Millennial Minister of Truth, and until next time. Talk to my friend Drew Allen. I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. Of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As Drew Allen. I look to this guy for wisdom.